Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milbin, and I'm joined as usual by my very good friend, Nadia Idle. Hello. And my other very good friend, Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're talking about myth and myths, which isn't a straightforward concept, I think. So we need to determine, firstly, what is a myth? And then secondly, why would we want to talk about myths? Why do they matter? Who wants to have a go at that? I think I'll get into the defining of a myth a little bit later, but maybe I'll start with some of the things that I'm interested in. So uh, when we pick this topic, thank you, Kia, this is another great one of yours. Um, things that I was thinking about were, I guess I'm interested in how myths function and what purpose they serve more generally. Things like how myths and myth-making happen. Um how they spread, and how the quality or efficiency of a myth is related to the modes of trans- transmission, in effect. So is it, if it communicated through word of mouth or newspapers or, or Twitter or like what bits of culture um, uh, transmit that myth, like how it affects how successful the myth is in spreading in a way. Also, of course, how myths are related to power. So who gets to tell the story? And also, if a myth is a weapon or a defense. I'm also particularly interested in myths uh, and how myths represent women and how they serve patriarchy and the subjugation of women and our dehumanization through creation of, you know, things like the mysterious feminine subject and, you know, an attempt to to summarize women, which we'll we'll get to when we speak about Simone de Beauvoir's work um, later. Um, But this also got me thinking about where else myth functions in this way, where perhaps, you know, there's a condemning of a person or a particular group as an unknown is used as a technology to exercise power and how that interacts with, you know, like um, theories around populism and stuff. Um, And I'm also interested in how myths relate to values. So how do they speak to values? What do they reveal about values? And whether they inform us about zeitgeist and state of the nation and how culture projects value onto myths. So those are some of the opening reasons why I'm interested in talking about myths today. Jeremy? Yeah, I'm interested in the concept of myth to some extent and the different uses of the term. So the way that the term is sometimes used to refer to falsehood in general, and sometimes the way it's used to refer to almost any kind of way of thinking about the world or thinking about the world as a totality. And from that perspective, myth becomes something you sort of can't think without. So that's an interesting tension for us to explore, I think. Uh, And I am, yeah, I am always interested in the ways in which the dream of a fully rational, fully logical society in which there would be all all mythic thought would be displaced by science and reason. It sort of, it sort of persists up until our own, maybe it persists up until the 70s in some ways, I think, as now seems to have completely gone. I don't think nobody now believes we're ever going to live in a society like that, in which something like myth doesn't perpetually circulate in all kinds of ways. And 
I guess the appeal of, of myth as well in, in the in the sense of the ancient stories, which we still know people were telling themselves and each other thousands of years ago. I think it's also always interesting to think about why that that cultural material remains so compelling for us and the different way the different uses people have tried to make of it in thinking about theories of culture in general. That, uh, that's interesting, that connection to totality, actually. That, that sort of helps me think about why I'm interested in myth. So, Because if you want to sort of define myths, or, or, or move towards some sort of definition of myths, I suppose we're going to do define myths over the whole episode. Like We can think about them as like these, these sort of, these sort of um, repeating stories or almost like these really powerful, almost like fundamental stories that keep repeating um, and then because they because they're repeated, not the same, they always get changed, etc. You know, they they help people orientate themselves, or they're they're the sort of stories that you sort of position, you fit your own experiences into, or you fit new information into these sort of myth mythological stories. So I suppose there's like well, there's mythological stories such as like these things which we understand as myths, um, uh, objectively, sort of you know ancient. The, the the origin myths, you know, creation stories, etc. You know, the Greek myths and like um, Beowulf and uh, Gilgamesh, and the Mabaginian is the Welsh Welsh myth. Mabinogion. Mabinogion, is it? You get it right. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't speak Welsh ever. I was in the I was in the um, the dunces class at Welsh when I was at, at school. Um, <laughs> but that the the, the Mabigon, what say it again? Mabinogian. The Mabinogian. <laughs> um, one of the really Welsh. In one of the um, <laughs> one of the games me and Jeremy play, I uh, play a character called Gronu, the name of which I took from uh, the Welsh myth that I am uh, unfortunately unable to name. Um, but anyway, there's these sorts of myths, and we sort of you know that people analyze those and try to think about the role that they play in society. But people also use the word myth to think about much more sort of proximate or recent sort of stories, stories which are which you know get repeated all the time, and that like one of the things that's important about them is that they seem to sit outside, basically outside history, and to some degree outside rationality, because you know the when we talk about something as a myth, it's something which which is sort of like given, you know, something which is un, un, unexamined, if you know what I mean. And they sit outside history because, like myths, myth and history are probably two different ways in which you could think about time. They don't relate to each other. You know, myths are something that sits outside history. At least I think that's true. Anyway, okay, well, it's interesting to think about the emergence of the idea of myth and of mythology as as a potential object of study. Mm -hmm. And that's really something that emerges in the 18th century as part of the Enlightenment, mm. precisely coterminously with the invention of modern history and historiography and the idea of having a sort of science of culture, a science of society, which you start to get with people like Vico and Herder and their successes. And, I mean, really what's happening is, on the one hand, the liberal, the rising liberal bourgeoisie of Europe and its colonies has decided that it it can define it, the difference between itself and all previous generations by the fact that it has a more or less scientific conception of the world and it no longer believes all kinds of magical things or supernatural things about the causes of the causes of the world and its phenomena. 
And instead, it, it's seeking a historical and scientific understanding, both of its own past and its present and its potential future. And on the other hand, people are you know, becoming much more knowledgeable about the different sets of beliefs all around from all around the world. And so you start to get these collections of mythology published, which are quite different. It's, so it's quite different from the older idea that you read the classics, you read like the ancient Greeks and Romans and their stories because they're part of the great cultural and literary inheritance, In, which is an idea which persists right up until the present. Instead, it's this idea that you read all these different sets of stories that so-called primitive people have had and have told themselves and each other to explain the world. And and you start to be able to translate things like, you know, the Sumerian tablets and the Babylonian tablets, which are, which have, you know, the oldest stories, like the story of Gilgamesh, which are even older than the surviving Greek stories and Egyptian, for example. And people start to realise that, well, there do seem to be all these patterns. Yeah, there seem to be these patterns, these repeated patterns and these repeated tropes in stories and so-called myths from around the world. And by the by sometime in the 19th century, this is a real preoccupation of people. Like, how do you understand, what do we make of the fact that there are all these recurring patterns? So, you know, in George Eliot's middle, novel Middlemarch, one of the characters, Casaubon, is is perpetually working on his great academic work, which will be the key to all mythologies. So the idea that there might be some underlying structure, some underlying pattern to all of this is, it's already a really strong idea by the late 19th century. And it's an idea which very much informs disciplines like anthropology, like right at the start of their emergence as academic disciplines. You know, incidentally, I was thinking the other day, actually, how weird it is that there's like a period of history, and maybe we're still in that period of history, where people think it's like really rational to believe in the story of the Gospels, but clearly totally irrational to believe in like Zeus or Thor or something. And I was thinking that's such a weird thing from a contemporary perspective. Like, but is that still that's very common. That's very common. Yeah, loads of people still think that now. Yeah, but since the 18th century, because up, it's, yeah, I don't know. I guess there are still loads of people who think that. Um, um, there are, yeah, there are. There, there, you know, if you look at the um, leadership election for the SMP, it's come to the fore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't put, I didn't put like Genesis and Adam and Eve in my origin story myths little uh, list I gave earlier. So that's, what, yeah, it's true. I mean, the thing that really starts to blow people's minds in the 18th, 19th century is finding out the things like the story of the flood, like occur in all these other myths. And we still don't really know. Well, is that because they were remnant? Is that because they had some historical veracity? Or is it just because it was a story that circulated that didn't begin in the didn't begin with the nation of Israel? It began in Babylon. Like, uh, well, that's interesting. Really know. That's interesting because also you can think about it the other way around. So how does religion incorporate the concept of myth. So for example, there are several religions which will say that dinosaurs are a myth. They're like they're a test from God because you know it's not it doesn't fit in to like that the teachings of that religion. So when when dinosaurs when dinosaur um fossils were discovered, it's like, well that's 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 a myth. That's a test. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's totally, I mean, that, that idea emerges as part of the process that I'm talking about. Because mm -hmm. I'm supposed to clarify to what I'm saying quickly, like really early on in the history of Christianity, 
uh, and I think it's also true of Islam, people aren't saying like, oh, there's no such thing as Zeus. Like that would seem like a mad thing to say. It's just like, oh, Zeus isn't like the creator of the world and a great God. He's like a demon. So like you shouldn't worship him. There's this other God who's the one you should be really worshipping. The idea that actually Zeus just never existed at all, that, that comes much later in that history. It's much, and it's the idea that so yeah, so that clear difference, and, and that only really emerges as part of the process of separating out the need for binary. I know that in Christianity and Judaism, like it's very, very late that you get to the point of saying actually all the other gods don't even exist, not just that they're rubbish and you shouldn't follow them. So that turns into a claim about truth, like an epistemological claim, rather than just a claim about authority in some sense and a claim about what's superior. But then because of all, once you get to the early 20th century anyway, the idea that somehow myths are this, uh, the ancient myths are this sort of key to understanding some universal features of human culture are really, is really popular. It's all over the place. And I think probably the most influential Today, the most influential elements of that idea that still survive are the psychological theories. So for Freud, for Sigmund Freud and for Carl Gustav Jung, his contemporary, the founders of, of modern theories of the unconscious, the idea that somehow the ancient mythic stories tell us something about the universal workings of the human unconscious, it's really a central idea, actually. It's a central idea for them that persists to this day but it's an idea which is really is always challengeable and is always potentially problematic because anytime you're making claims to know and to be able to identify universal features of human consciousness then you are going against what is normally the radical imperative to as Jameson says to always historicize to recognize that in fact the forms of human consciousness are always changing. They're always variable, dependent upon the historical, social, material circumstances. I think we should play We Need a Myth by Oakville River. It, they're kind of late 90s, uh, it's got late 90s indie sound, but it was actually was released in uh, 2011. And it's a band from Austin, Texas, and it's got that, it's got a, got a nice, moody, mythical feel so it's that's we need a myth by ockerville river I need a We should probably flesh that out a little bit as in, you know, what is Freud's use of myth? And so the most famous use of myth is is like, you know, his, uh, comes from the Oedipal complex in which he resorts to the sort of Greek myth uh, of Oedipus in, in which Oedipus um, kills his father and marries his, uh, marries his mum. And so this is, this is one of the things that, um, you know, Freud is influenced by this idea that like these these myths repeating different circumstances are repeated like fairy tales or in in stories um you know uh you see them happening over and over again and so the where where he goes from that is that well you know well what's causing that you know what's causing this repetition and and you know he's saying it's you know there's a there's a there's a universality in the experience of childhood or the movement from childhood to adulthood perhaps we put it that way 
which is being figured by these myths, basically. That's his resort to, you know, it's a way, myths are a way of accessing universal truths. Um, and where do those universal truths lie? Will they lie in common uh, moments in in the life cycle or something like that? Yeah, I don't even I don't even know actually to what extent the Oedipus story predates you know the play. It's Sophocles' play Oedipus Rex, yeah. which is which is you know the tragedy of Oedipus, which Freud is actually referring to with the idea of the Oedipus complex. But um, um actually yeah i think it does i, it, I think it like it, there's a reference to it in the odyssey there's references to it in homer so i guess it i guess it does count as a myth rather than just a really old fiction and is there like a backlash or anything like in you know schools of psychology that there is the bringing in of kind of myth into analysis in that way well i mean there's been, I mean, the whole of modern clinical psychology, to some extent, is a sort of backlash against the what are seen as being the overarching un- unscientific claims made by people like Freud and Jung in the early 20th century, arguably. As anti-history as well, or just you know, anti-science? Well, I think, well, it's an interesting point. Like, psychology, generally speaking... This is a massive generalisation, and there are all going to be huge exceptions to this. But you know, mainstream clinical psychology in in the developed world is shaped by a particular set of scientific and philosophical traditions and assumptions, which are not massively interested in the question of the extent to which psychic experience is shaped by historical forces. They're just not really interested in that question. So, that, so they're more interested in kind of you know, creating some sort of scientific protocols for developing theories of personality and behaviour and motivation, which are testable in something like supposedly kind of lab, laboratory or clinical conditions, or just empirically verifiable through quantitative studies of some kind. Um, and the question of the historicist critique of Freudianism and Jungianism and the general theory of the unconscious that they rely on will come more from it'll come more from the Marxian tradition or come more from the socialist tradition it'll also it'll come from you know psychotherapists to some extent even working within that tradition who always and also from sociologists it'll come from sociologists and anthropologists more than anywhere else actually and because what happens over the course of the 20th century is that sociologists and anthropologists will increasingly say that they are identifying psychic structures in different cultural situations and different social groups which are very different from those described by Freud. I mean, not always, of course. I mean, I mean, you know, anthropology is really anthropology as a discipline in the second half of the 20th century is massively influenced by the ideas of Claude Levi Strauss the great French anthropologist, and, and again, Levi Strauss thinks he can identify some sort of basic structure of myth. But yeah, the, but I would say those ideas, are all, they're always in tension with any approach, whether it's sociological or anthropological or Marxian or philosophical, which wants to stress the way things are variable between different cultures and different historical moments. And yeah, it's a sort of perpetual tension, isn't it? It's really hard to say to Freud, like, no, it's not even interesting that, like, the Oedipus myth and Hamlet have these really similar features, even though you can just explain that by the fact that Shakespeare would have been perfectly familiar with Oedipus Rex, for example. But, and that there seems to be this very common theme in lots of fiction and culture of 
you know, boys having traumatic relationships with their fathers, which are somehow symbolically figured in terms of a relationship with the the mother and with other women as well. So it's really, you know, it's really hard to say, well, there's absolutely nothing to that. And it's really hard to say, well, there are absolutely no ubiquitous features of human culture, just because you have the minimal experience of of the the experience the physical experience of sexual maturation for example on the one hand it, of course it will be experienced radically differently in different social historical contexts on the other hand biologically it is an experience that everybody goes through on, on the path from childhood to adulthood so the idea that there might be some common features to the ways in which cultures have tried to narrate that and process it isn't that weird The Cocteau Twins, Persephone, from their 1984 album Treasure. Cocteau Twins, classic British post-punk art rock. Always really interesting. We should play a song to the siren, which is was written by Tim Buckley. But I think we should play the Miss, this mortal coil version. This mortal coil, a sort of like a, a sort of like a super group formed of various artists, a sort of rotating super group of artists on Four AD, this sort of indie record label. And in fact, it's Liz Fraser from Cocteau Twins who sings on that, isn't it? So that's a reference back to Persephone. And that the sirens are the, uh, the sirens are this sort of Greek mythological figure uh, who, who have such beautiful enchanting song that they um, you know entrance um, men basically, and so um, in the Odyssey, Odysseus has his men lash him to the mast, and then he clogs all their ears with beeswax so they can't hear, and he's, he's driven sort of mad as they drive past this wonderful song. Do you want to say a bit about um, about Jung's uh, th- where Jung takes that that sort of thinking? If we want to get weird, <laughs> I think I've set out and I've said before on the show like what is the basic Freudian assumption. The basic Freudian assumption is yeah the the process of going from becoming a baby to becoming a functioning adult and then a functioning adult who's also gone through puberty and entered into all the social norms of a society which has rules governing sexual relationships. That process, however variable the way in which different cultures deal with it is, is always going to be sort of traumatic. Like it's just a weird process and no other animals do it in the way that humans do because they don't have language and social institutions. So, And it is going to produce effects in people even if the effects it produces in people are going to vary all the time between individuals and cultures and 
the job of the psychoanalyst is to figure out the, the specificity of the experience of the individual going through the, has, you know, who's gone through those processes in relation to some assumptions about what the universal features of those experiences might be expected to be. So that, that's like the Freudian assumption. And then myths are usually read as, myths are often read as some as telling some kind of story about what it means to be human according you know with reference to those phenomena that i've just talked about now jung gets much more is much weirder and jung is partly there is i think there is a sort of radical impulse in jung is that he wants to in that i think unlike freud he thinks of the unconscious as this domain of shared ideas, like shared experiences, shared images. So whereas Freud's theory is a theory of individuation, it's a theory about how every individual becomes irreducibly an individual. Jung is more interested in the extent to which there are these aspects, there seem to be these aspects of motivation and behaviour, which he thinks are, are pretty much universal between cultures. And he thinks myths are what tell us about what are the features of human experience and the human psychic life, which are universal. Um, you know, if Jung was was doing this today, and I think people have done this with Jung, and other and people have also put forward similar theories, not explicitly referencing Jung, but I think actually coming to quite similar conclusions, what you would do is you would you would try to justify the with reference to sort of neuroscience. You would say, are there are these actual structures in the brain that produce specific patterns of thought which myths express i mean that is pretty much what people like uh, lakoff the inventor of frames theory says but jung isn't that interested he's not really interested in neuroscience i don't think i might be wrong about that i don't think he is but yeah but he thinks myths tell us something universal about the nature of human consciousness and so he thinks that what you can identify in myths of these things he called archetypes. And the archetypes are these images, these powerful images which suffuse human culture and the human imagination. And they are images like the hero, uh, the wise old woman, like the caring mother, you know, maybe the trickster, for example. And these are tropes which recur in various mythologies, but somehow the way to understand a particular person's psychic experience is to understand the particular ways they process those universal archetypes. So that is it. That is it. That is Jung as I understand it. I have to say, I've never really studied Jung, partly because Jung is really, is, you know, there the, the never has really been much of a left Jungianism. I mean, there's a massive tradition of left Freudianism and left anti-Freudianism. Jung, I mean, there definitely are like Jungian psychotherapists and people really into Jung who would see themselves as politically on the left, but they're always treated with a lot of suspicion because Jung did really, Jungian ideas, I would say in the mid-20th century, really became most popular with radical conservatives, with people like Eliad, like one of the founders of modern religious studies, people like Joseph Campbell with his theory of the universal, you know, yeah, the, the, well, Keir, you can talk about Campbell in a minute and his influence, but, you know, the most famous Jungian in the world today is Jordan Peterson. So perhaps we could bring it back to, like, other other theorists about myth from the 20th century. One that's obvious is Bart's concept or Bart's book on mythologies, which is which is much more much more about like he's got this. It starts off with this list of modern myths, uh, 
Um, and it's much more about it's much more an idea that in fact it's much closer to like concepts of ideology. In fact, and he sort of he, he looks at modern myths as ways in which uh, you know myths work to sort of naturalize beliefs, beliefs or naturalize concepts yeah. in some sort of way. You know, by uh, you know, but they create familiar impressions on you and. Yeah, yeah. But Bart's book mythology, it is it is a it is a classic work of popular ideology critique. Basically. Yeah. Very similar to like Marx to capitalist realism, actually, um, in that sense. Um and it is just, you know, <laughs> as with Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, if you'd called it, if you'd if you'd put in the title, this is a book about bourgeois ideology, you would have sold far fewer copies than calling it Mythology which is the title of Bart's book, which came out in 56, I think, which is actually a collect... He, he, he had a column in a newspaper for a while, where, and each 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 column was just like... It was a very short analysis of like an advert or a concept in contemporary culture that was a myth. But in fact, when you get the book, when you get the book, you see that actually he had, what he's putting for, to, forward is a theory of how ideologies are constructed and how ideology works in contemporary culture. So it is, it is just a synonym for ideology, I think. Yeah, or it's, a, it's an angle on, on ideology critique, put it that way. Because one, one of the essays about wrestling, um, uh, uh, and it's sort of like his analysis of wrestling is, you know, in a way, it's a way in which you restage these. It's a sort of stage where you restage these myths. And so, you know, it's got, like, I'm quite interested in wrestling, like modern wrestling, and there's this concept of kayfabe where you must never break the illusion that um, this is a real this is a real um, sport, basically, and there's competition going on, and never to reveal it, it's staged. Um, and like so, what gets staged are these sort of you know society's conceptions or the or the operative conceptions of like good and evil. Do you know what I mean? I watched a documentary the other day about this wrestler from the seventies um, called Adrian Street, who was um, from the Welsh Valleys, and his dad was a was a miner. And Adrian Street was, was like basically he he was like glam rock before glam rock. Basically, he had more makeup. He pranced around the stage and he was a heel. You know, he was supposed to be like recreating like, you know, basically homophobia in some sort of way, but also people sort of like him, but it's like restaging this battle between some sort of conception of good and some sort of conception of, of, of evil. I quite like that idea of like, yeah, we can see these sorts of instances in which sort of mythological uh, stories get rehearsed. I don't think that you can do that analysis to all of the chapters in that book, but <laughs> but I like that one. Sun Ra, avant-garde jazz musician, uh, mainly based in Chicago for for his very long, decades-long career. His big band, who most of whom live together in this big communal house, the orchestra still exists, still functions, still does great music. We could play Realm of Lightning from a 1970-71 recording they did, which was released under the title Sun Ra and His Solar Myth Orchestra, The Solar Myth Approach. And Sun Ra's whole stick from the late 50s was to have this sort of pseudo-pharaonic, pseudo-Egyptian costumes and imagery and make all these references to the, the Egyptian sun god Ra, as a very deliberate and explicit exercise in contemporary Afrocentric mythmaking. You know, this Egyptian imagery was important to African-American people like Sun Ra because 
of course, the Egyptian people were African, and yet the the Africanness of the first, arguably the first, or one of the first of the great Mediterranean civilizations was sort of written out of European ways of remembering that ancient history for a very long time. So it was a way of reasserting the centrality of African experience to world history, adopting this imagery in a very self-consciously, explicitly mythical way, but in a constructive way, an enabling way. And so Sun Ra is really a, a great example of mythic thinking and mythic practice being explicit and obviously political. And this track, Realm of Lightning, is just one of very, very many. They recorded in many, many different styles over decades. We also thought we'd mention Leclerc and Mouffe, Ernesto Leclerc and Chantal Mouffe, the uh, doyens of so-called post-Marxist theory in the 90s, 2000s, up to the present. In their, probably their seminal theoretical statement, I would say, their 1990 book called New Reflections on the Revolution of Our Time, they also have this concept of the mythic space, which is very much like Bart, actually, very much like Bart. It is a sort of synthesis of Marxian ideology critique and psychoanalytic thinking. And I don't think there's any point in me trying to get into a big unpacking of how they use that term in that book. Basically, again, the mythic for them is that is the domain, the order of discourse within which a society imagines itself as a sort of totality, imagines itself as a sort of whole. Of course, what's really important for Leclerc and Mouffe is to stress the fact that any conception of society as a complete whole, as a totality, as not always constituted by antagonism and incompletion and dissatisfactions, is just that. It is a fantasy. It is a fantasy. And, um, you know, the fantasy in psychoanalysis is always, always to some extent, a, every fantasy is to some extent the same kind of fantasy. And it, it is always a fantasy of completion, fantasy of things being complete and whole and it not being constituted by any inherent lack. So that is how they conceptualise it. So, yeah, you might think of something like Brexit, like the fantasy of Brexit, the myth of Brexit as being the thing which is going to solve all the problems, which will b- bring the nation together and will also define the difference between the nation and its enemies, whether they are internal enemies, the Ramonas or external enemies, the nasty foreigners, the Brexit is going to end the influence of. Um, so that is how they use the term. What is what is slightly ambiguous in both Bart and Leclerc and Mouffe, although Leclerc and Mouffe tried to make it less ambiguous, is the question of, well, are these just modes of thought which it is not possible to do without if you are going to have a functioning society? Or are these particularly untrue ways of thinking about the world that a radical critic needs to try to get beyond in order to find some more true way of thinking about the world? And that is a quite that is and that is the a persistent question with thinking about myth. 
but we've sort of we talked a bit about Freud and Jung and Roland Barthes, and we've talked about Leclerc and Mouffe who were writing in 1990, but we have leapt over somebody who I have in print, I have said before in print, I think is arguably the most important thinker of the 20th century. Uh, and I think, you, I think you're going to talk about her on you, Nadia. So um, I thought it was important to mention um, Simone de Beauvoir's work here. I think it's chapter three of the, the famous book, The Second Sex, where basically she starts talking about there being different kinds of myths. So in summary, she says that there's one kind of myth, which is like this one, the myth of women. And so she says it's sublimating an immutable aspect of human condition, namely the so-called division of humanity into two classes of individuals as a static myth. So she's got this concept of the static myth. And basically what she says on that is that this kind of myth projects onto the realm of ideas a reality that is directly experienced or conceptualized on the basis of experience in place of fact. So the way she puts it is that the idea is it, it becomes indisputable because it's beyond the given. So she has this concept of beyond the given and it's endowed with like an absolute truth. Um, so even though, of course, in reality, you get multiple kind of different existences of, of, of woman or what a woman is and how a woman behaves, which calls actual women, you get this mythical thought, which puts this idea of the eternal feminine as, you know, unique and changeless. Um, and so the interesting bit is that this Con this concept of the eternal feminine, the myth of the eternal feminine, is obviously contradicted every day, all of the time, by the behavior of what she calls flesh and blood women, i.e. real world women. Um, but in this myth, which is perpetuated by patriarchy every day, it is the real world women who are wrong. Um, and we're not told that, you know, femininity is this kind of false um, entity that is, i.e. gender, something in culture that's made up by culture and, and, and patriarchy. Rather, it's, it's, it's the women, uh, the real world women who are not feminine or whatever. Um, and, and, the and the contradictory facts of women in real life and their behavior and their experiences are therefore impotent against the myth. And she uses that term, you know, deliberately of impotency against the myth. And so she, her, her wording is to pose women is to pose the absolute other without reciprocity, denying against all experience that she's a subject and a fellow human being. And that's what I really like about de Beauvoir's work is this constant reminder that what's happening here is a form of using myth to dehumanize women in this kind of um, uh, myth of femininity. So that's my uh, summary of that chapter three. Yeah, you can sort of see how that that gives us another a, a sort of much that much more sort of proximate conception of, of of myth, isn't it? Because you could do a sort of similar critique and, and think about, and in fact, Jeremy was when he when he was talking about the Moose conception of of Brexit, a much more proximate co conception of myths as these stories that seem to recur all the time, or, or, the, or the stereotypes that seem to recur. Like when when something is mythic, it's put. It's basically it's it's it's, it's seen as something which is given that we don't have to to um, or it's not possible to critique 
Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. Does this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, that, that, and that is also, I mean, that is the classic definition of ideology as well. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, it's not a, self, a self-identifying myth. So in the case of, you know, the eternal feminine, it's, it's, it's so beyond truth that it, it takes this, this, this identity as beyond given. Like there, there's no awareness of it in culture, right? And that's the point where there are other myths which yeah, recognize yeah. themselves as myths. Yeah, that's the distinction in it, I think, is that these things which are sort of given and therefore not seen as myths or not recognised as myths and then things which are self, not self-consciously, which we self-consciously think about as myths or yeah. as mythic. That is a really interesting distinction. And I think it does map onto actually different conceptions of ideology because the in the history of ideology critique, going back to Marx and Engels in, in the German ideology in the 1840s, throughout that history, there is this tension between... Uh, an idea that you differentiate ideology from scientific truth and knowledge, true knowledge of the world, or whether you just differentiate ideologies from each other, socialist ideology from capitalist ideology. And I think that tension is also played out in those different attitudes to the idea of myth. Like, is myth, are myths the lies we must expose to understand the truth of social reality and history? Or are myths the the stories we recognise as indispensable while also recognising that they are just stories? But interestingly, that tension I was just talking about is not really there for like some of the major conservative thinkers of the mid-20th century. I mean, especially thinking here of Leo Strauss, who we didn't mention in our notes, and I meant to. It's Strauss was the guy, the American conservative thinker, who just flat out said, yeah, society, societies need myths. And he just said they were just necessary fictions. He said, for a society to function, the, most of the people in the society have to believe a load of bullshit about it, that, that the power elite have to know is bullshit. And he just literally said it. In, and it's still a hugely influential text within certain strands of elite conservatism. It is said to be, you know, one of the books which your real members of the power elite will will study because that is what they and that they believe themselves to be guided by i have no way of knowing if that's true or not but that wasn't entirely separate from the use of the concept of myth made by people like the american mythologist joseph campbell i think you should talk about campbell here it just made me think when you were talking then, it just made me remember uh, that, that the, the sort of at the high point of like the the post 9-11 project for a new American century, that sort of like pre or, or during the, the initial stages of the Iraq war, there were all of these, I remember the, the sort of like um, Straussians around Bush were like really into this idea that like, um, I can't remember this interview, but there was an interview of a liberal journalist and this this like arrogant young um, Straussian is saying, "Oh look, look! You go and study reality. Why don't you just go and study reality? It doesn't matter, matter to us because while you're off studying reality, we'll be off creating a new reality. And then you can come along later on and study that. Basically, it was like you know we're masters of the universe because we're going to create our own myths, and those myths will structure the world, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Yeah, and they those guys genuinely thought that it was a good idea to do the Iraq War, and and it was necessary to do the Iraq War without any reference to the question of whether Saddam posed any real threat, even to American interests, because you need an enemy to fight. 
because America was losing its way. It was falling apart because of the end of the Cold War and you, you just needed a war and you needed an enemy. And they were really explicit. Like that was their theory. I mean, obviously, like you can make a, a very small leap from that to, um, you know, Tony Blair and um, Alistair Campbell and the sexed up dossier and the the, the faked, um, you know, Iraq can bomb the UK in 45 minutes or whatever, that, that sort of claim. Sure. There, and, and there's something there about myth as mobilizer. Yeah. Right. Is basically saying that, that these are these are important. These are important things to, uh, you know, going back to what we're saying about ideology, to, to be able to mobilize society in a certain direction towards a certain aim, you know. Did we talk about Georges Sorel when we talked That's about... That's exactly what just came to my <laughs> mind. Yeah. Georges Sorel, who Gramsci was, all, was in a sort of dialogue with sometimes, he had this whole, whole weird idea that the idea that was coming out of syndicalism, which was that there was never really going to be a great general strike, but somehow the myth of the great general strike as the horizon to which you were organising was necessary for radical organisation. It's a dangerous direction to go in, the idea of the necessary myth. I agree. It's sort of interesting, though. It's interesting because for Sorel, it's like like the whole point of the myth is not that it will persuade people rationally to do something, but it will create, he talks about like an intuition of socialism that will have an intuition that, that like, you know, socialism is something which is definitely going to happen. Do you know what I mean? We can we can feel it, feel it around us. You know these intense feelings of of certainty in some sort of way. And so it was that the myth would create the motivating or the animating force, which would permit the sort of you know huge efforts and even like the great sacrifices that probably are actually necessary in order to to get to socialism. That that's an element of myth, isn't it? Basically, it acts on these like creating these sort of like effective bonds, basically intense effective bonds. Yeah, well, I think we've, we have hit on something here, which I don't think we're not going to have time to explore here. It's something for future, but the the philosophical position from which I would critique that would be, as as it often is on this show, sort of Spinozist Marxism, which would say it is correct to recognise that you have to work with people at the level of their feelings and their hopes, and you have to give people opportunities to feel optimistic and hopeful, but it is wrong to say that the way you'd ever do that is by telling them stuff you know is not true, because that can never work. That can only ever lead to, to sad affects, bad affects. There's a whole distinction between a sort of materialist and in some sense rationalist tradition on the one hand, and on the other hand, a tradition which always ends up being quite conservative, which thinks you have to throw people some lies to get to do what you want. Just to complete the ACFM extended universe, we actually role played this this dilemma when we played comrades together. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> or whether we should lie to people in order to get them to do something. Can't remember the conclusion we came to now. But it was anyway. a no. It was a no. <laughs> Jeremy kept <laughs> but, trying um, to pull us into meetings, though. This was this was the problem. <laughs> well, that's the that's the two options: endless meetings or some animating myth, which will no doubt lead to <laughs> yeah. fascism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That no, that's exactly the point. That is Gil- that is Gilbertism. You, know, you cannot end. You can You cannot end the endless the endless meeting of freedom. Here comes without, the defense. Uh, without imposing. A kind of mythical, a mythical surface on the collective discourse, which will tendentially lead to fascism. Hey, this is Nadia. I hope you're enjoying this trip from ACFM, the home of the weird left. 
You can go even weirder and leftier by subscribing to our newsletter, which we will now be sending out with every new trip, so no more than about once a month, with bonus content and updates from the ACFM crew. To sign up, go to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. For more music and less chat, follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM. And to support us to keep bringing you even more from the ACFM cosmos, support our hosts, Novara Media, for as little as £1 a month by going to novara.media forward slash support. That's all for now. Stay weird and wonderful, folks. Hyacinth House is a song by The Doors, a 1971 song. So some of the lyrics refer to a mythological Hyacinth um, and the lover of the Greek god Apollo. So that's a, a nice song I think we should play. I've also got a reference to Apollo. I just thought we should play an ending, which I think is the first track from Brian Eno's 1983 album Apollo, uh, for no better reason than we don't play enough Brian Eno on the show. And it's called Apollo, who was a Greek god, obviously. So Joseph Campbell, most well known for his book, um, The Hue of the Thousand Faces, in which he rehearses this idea that there's a monomyth, that all myths um, basically relate relate back to one myth, basically. And that one myth is the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is something which will be really, really familiar to us because it structures so much. Of I mean, it is the key the- to all mythologies. I mean, he's, I mean, Campbell's basic argument is uh, the story of Gilgamesh is is just repeated again and again in all myths, and that is the key to all myths. You would think that, given that George Eliot was making fun of it, like a yeah, nearly a hundred years previously, I suppose much less than that in Camp- when Campbell was first writing. But you would think that if George Eliot, several generations earlier, was already making fun of this idea, people would have been embarrassed to start churning it out. It is incredible. Like, it's a satirical object in George Eliot, like the great Victorian novelist, the key to all mythologies. But all of these guys we're talking about, culminating in Campbell, they all think, literally, they think what they've got is the key to all mythologies. The the hero's journey is that... um... You know, somebody exists in the everyday life. They go on an adventure. They go on a sort of journey. They get a, they, they meet a mentor. They have a final battle. Then they'll come back to it, to ordinary, uh, the, the everyday world, but changed in some sort of way. Um, you know, so it's, in some ways, it seems like, you know, almost a banal, oh yeah, well, that, that's how stories go, isn't it? Uh, and, and like basically, if, you know, lo- loads of the stuff that we watch now is just based around that, around that that narrative structure like george lucas took it 
took the took uh, Campbell's book as the guide for which to to write the original three Star Wars uh, films around, for instance, and and we just see it over and over and over again. And so, so what do you do about that, basically? What do you do about that? And one of the things you should know about that is, is the individual's journey. Do you know what I mean? It's the, it's the thing we should be concerned about when, with narratives is the individual's journey and the, the, the sort of like, I don't know whether um, uh, we can say psychological, but it is. It's the psychological change that takes place during this, 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 this journey. Is that the interesting thing? Well, it is a really seductive idea and... I mean, one of the critiques of Campbell from narratologists is just that it's sort of a banal idea that, yeah, there, there may be certain basic structures to all narrative fiction, but so what? It doesn't tell you necessarily anything about the structure of the brain. It's just almost like geometry. Like there's only so many things yeah. that happen in a story. Like, so what? If- or, or you can you can basically create a, a, a you can create a, a, you can use the elements that you find in in myths and create probably create several stories but this is one of them sort of thing it's probably more realistic yeah yeah myth has a different quality to it than grand narratives i'm trying to think whether we need to distinguish between these things in the conversation that we're having right well, now well the, the yeah. grand narrative is a story about society though is always a, and this i think Kia is right these the hero's journey is always a story about an individual although the individual right, may okay. be a culture hero but a grand narrative is a story about society hmm. and about the people as a whole. I mean, whether it's the, the children of Israel or the working class. Uh, that does get to, so Yves Citon writes about myths. I think What's his book called? I think that might be called Myth- Mythocracy as well, actually. It is called Mythocracy. And, and like he, he's, he's, he's trying to make a distinction between left-wing and right-wing myths. And it's exactly around this, basically. He's saying like, if you want to think about a right-wing myth, you don't have to worry about the content. It's the form, basically. It's not the whether it talks about you know the nation state or anything like that. It's like the form that the story takes, and it's is the individ is the agency individual, basically. And he says that the left wing myth must be about collective agency. You know, that's the form of it. That that form that a left wing myth, myth should take, which does make me think about who's the agent. <laughs> who's the agent? Yes, yeah, a collective agent, which does make me think. Um, uh, about George Sorel again and his sort of myth. Is that like a collective myth? I'm- I think it is in a way, yeah. I I would sort of buy that. I don't know. It's It would be a semantic quibble whether you would have to use the word myth for these things. I would say left-wing. Maybe it's it's fine. It, it, I mean, the way sit yeah, I, I think it's fine. I mean, Citon, Citon in that book, I think he is sort of using the terms like in the second way, like myths are structuring ways of thinking about the world that you can't really escape from. And so you need to figure out what are good ones versus bad ones. And for the left, good ones are stories of collective liberation and solidarity and you know crying crying about minors. And right-wing myths are myths about hero. They're either myths about the defense and restoration of authority and hierarchy, if they're really conservative myths, or they're myths about the self-emancipation of the individual, which is the liberal mm. myth. And I think that's fine. I think that's that is I think that is a useful frame of reference, actually. It'd be nice to think through our list of um, films about strikes because I mean, films about strikes are, are rare because they are about collective agency, aren't they? Usually, but then you get things like Hoffer, etc., which is you know much more of the not the hero's journey. But. Yeah, well, that's true actually. I mean, that was why I said on the show that in some ways Eisenstein's film is still the most radical one because it's the one that is most it is trying to make the hero the crowd rather than the individual. Though that's only one way of reading it, but I think it is. 
I think it is interesting and it's definitely, I know it's partly because, you know, I'm obsessed with the issue of collectivity versus individualism and collectivism versus individualism. Yeah, I think we all are. But I'm all, that's what I'm always looking out for. I'm always looking at whether, we're, <laughs> whether I'm like, you know, I'm all, whatever I'm reading, whatever fiction I'm consuming or, or watching, I'm always thinking about this issue, like where is agency? I'm in the middle of reading Lord of the Rings to about, 12 year old at the moment which has been going on for ages and that's a notoriously complex modern fantasy work which i would say is partly the reason it's so popular is because it, it actually deploys elements like these liberal myths and conservative myths and even in some places radical myths in a in a to create its fabric and but I'm always thinking about. It. I'm always focusing on that question. Oh, is, the, is is who's actually got the agency here, and is it being liberal or is it being conservative? I mean, I suppose that's a, that's another way in which people use myths that we hadn't, didn't think of before, which is like this idea of the mythos and a fiction on mythos, such as the Cthulhu mythos, which is like a shared sort of world, or um, yeah, a shared world which has like creation myths and all of the other sort of types of myths. You know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that is one of the things about the idea of a mythos or a mythology is that it's shareable and reproducible, isn't it? I mean, that is what differentiates. I mean, the the great the great works of fantasy fiction of the twentieth century, people like Lovecraft and Tolkien are partly considered great because they've sort of inspired other people to you know within the <laughs> depending on the limits of, of the ip the relevant ip laws and the, res, the the restrictiveness or otherwise of the attitudes of the author's estate you know they've inspired people to copy them or do or do things in their own or do things you know do their own stories using the same tropes and images and imagined worlds i think we should i think we should come back to this distinction between left-wing and right-wing myths though because there is a a character that we haven't talked about which is jordan peterson and he is sort of like you know if we want to think about the right wing deployment of studies about myths etc we'd have to talk about him i'm not going to talk about him though <laughs> i don't know enough well i mean peterson is a jungian he's yeah. the most famous jungian in the world today and his whole thing is that he thinks that, for example, what it means to be male, what it means to be a man, is to is either to take on the ancient role of the hero who fights for order against chaos, which he sees as being figured first in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the great Babylonian story about culture hero Gilgamesh and his battle against the demonic forces of Tiamat the dragon, who is represented as a sort of principle of the expression of the chaotic feminine and either you are accepting that what it means to be a man is to be that person and occupy that role somehow or you're just going to fail you're going to fun you're going to dysfunction you're going to become miserable i mean that's pretty and that's why you should tidy your room <laughs> so i don't know that's as much as i can say about it really also, the thing that drives me nuts about this is that if you go to the average person's home, it's the woman who brings order of the chaos. Do you know what I mean? Like it just taking it to the to the tidier room thing. I just find that specific that kind of myth specifically particularly infuriating as a woman. The, the, the chaos and order one, I think it's so much bollocks. 
Well, that is true, but Jordan Peterson's readership or listenership, more likely, um, are basically uh, young teenage boys who experience oh, mum coming into their bedroom and tidying up as a terrible <laughs> yeah, infringement on their liberties that they must defend. I, you know, like, I, as I've said before, like, I totally get why Jordan Peterson is successful at this point in history. And I don't think the left does enough to try and understand that. But I still obviously think that myth is just really, you know disgusting as a woman we could play a bit of bob dylan's long sort of epic poem song isis from his album desire which i think was co-written with a guy called jacques levy who is a sort of, was a sort of jungian esoterical thinker who dylan became friends with for a while uh, and it very very ex- deliberately tries to play around with these archetypes such as the archetype of isis the ancient egyptian goddess who end up becoming a central figure in the mythology of some of the esoteric and occult groups of the early 20th century as well a man in the corner approached me for a match i knew right away he was not ordinary he said are you looking for something easy to catch said i got no money said that ain't necessary the first time we got young or jungian analysis was in um grail marcus's book lipstick traces um, which is basically his book about punk but it's not about punk it's basically about the situation is international and all of the all of the um the the sort of avant-garde art movements that sort of sort of repeated in, in in punk i suppose you put it like that but at a certain point he introduces jung's idea of archetypes and then he did uh, like the thing it really sticks in my head and he does this thing always he links john lydon who is basically johnny rotten aka johnny rotten in the sex pistols and then pill um he links him to um john of lydon who is like this um uh, and a sort of like this proto-communist Anabaptist from the from the peasant revolts, you know, where they take over Munster and all these sorts of things. And like, he's just doing a fucking play on his words, you know. It's like perhaps he's it's like synchronicity. It's like, oh yeah, John of John Lydon and John of Lydon. And it's like I remember reading it, thinking, God, this is good fun. But like that yeah, is fucking is. bollocks, isn't it? It's just and he's trying to use like this idea of archetypes in order to sort of to back that up. But like, I think that is part of what is appealing or why that sort of like Jungian analysis sort of fits in to a sort of the contemporary sort of cosmic right sort of like assemblage, if you want to put it that way, like where, where basically like a lot of the joy of that sort of conspiratorial far right, which definitely goes into like, you know, Peterson and so forth is that idea of like politics as like making these connections between these things, you know, like politics as a treasure hunt where you, Oh, look, look, this fits here. And then if we go, we can go over there and like, which is the structure of things such as QAnon, you know, where you, you have to link things together and all that. We've talked about this before when, we, when we, when we talked about uh, the cosmic right and so forth. I mean, how that works with the cosmic right stuff as well is about mm. saying there is going back to to Jeremy's point about truth. It's about you knowing something and the empowerment that you get from being like, aha, I know that this bit of the puzzle works. And, you know, it, it's somewhere for people to go when there is, you know, confusion and despair and, you know, economic <laughs> uh, reality yeah, where everything's yeah. falling apart. You know, it makes sense. That's what I mean by it makes sense. You know, the system makes sense functions 
I think it butts up against myth because like basically what people are after is like the feeling or affect that is produced. And so like concerns about like dusty old concerns such as um, truth or um, coherence are basically less important, you know what I mean? Which is why it, it's quite quite hard to, to, to sort of like critique or argue against somebody. The latest far-right myth is this thing about 15-minute cities. I'm sure you've seen it going around and so 15 minute cities is just like it's some sort of like you know it's an urban planning sort of trend in which you should be able to go to the the local shops and everything you need should be within a 15 minute walk or bike ride or something and that's turned into you will not be allowed to go further than 15 minutes from your house basically and my my taxi driver i had the other day started to try and tell me this you know it's like like this is like that that's a myth and like basically i tried to argue against him and he didn't really defend it that much but it was obvious like he wasn't interested i couldn't disprove it to him i couldn't say well look if you read this art this thing it explains what 50 minute cities are etc because that's not what he's in it for he's in it be- for the effective charge exactly exactly and, that, and that's how you know belief systems function effectively yeah one thing to say about all that is that when you're looking at these things like conspiracy theories it becomes very difficult to completely dismiss the claims of the psychoanalysts or the mythologists or others that there are universal tropes or there are at least tropes which repeat and repeat and repeat within the very long tradition mm. of quote-unquote Western culture. Because, I mean, the tropes around things like QAnon, you can find in what are clearly of themselves just conspiracy theories going back to the early Middle Ages, uh, the idea that someone is murdering children somewhere for example, is that it just does come up again and again and again to the point where you can say, I would probably say, don't really buy that it's an absolutely ubiquitous feature of human culture, but might be a pretty ubiquitous feature of human cultures that have reached a certain degree of urbanisation and complexity so that people sort of feel like they don't really know what's going on a lot of the time. Yeah, and that, and that, that makes sense. And people are anxious about who's going to look after their children if something happens to them because you're not in a tight tribal structure where you know who's going to look after them. So, mm. so there are these really persistent tropes. Leclerc and Mouffe, actually, Leclerc and Mouffe would be very clear about the 15-minute thing. They'd say that's a perfect example, that what these what myths are always myths of, to some extent, or, in, or at least in the kind of societies we live in today, they're the myths that someone somewhere, someone, the constitutive outside, the other, the thing which defines your, the community you belong to simply by not being it, is, is trying to stop you achieving what Leclerc calls the absent fullness like stop you achieving your the, the state of completion and satisfaction and complete freedom so someone somewhere is going to stop you doing something um that's what 15 minute cities mean that they, they it must mean that someone somewhere is going to stop you being happy and free and to some extent mm. their psychoanalytic perspective is that look what actually what it means to become a rational human subject is to recognize everybody feels all the time like not quite fully satisfied that's just what it means to be human 
So either go off and become a Buddhist monk, like live in a, you know, meditate all day in a monastery, you might achieve, you might get rid of that feeling. That's your solution to everything. Either do that or just accept, like live with it, like learn to live with it, learn to live. That is just what it means to be human. I mean, that's the Lacanian answer to some extent. As an alcoholism. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I think it's, I think it's powerful. No, I'm defending because Kia, Kia, <laughs> Kia said that's your, for, that's your solution for everything. I think it's a better one. Well, no, I yeah. think it's not, it's a non-solution. Like, to me, that, that solution and go off and become a full-time monk is always sort of fascinating because it's been it's been around for two and a half thousand years it is a solution to many of these dilemmas it's clearly not one that everybody can do and it's clearly not a a scalable solution so it's a sort of limit case of of what you can't do so but i think that i think that leclerc and move point is pretty powerful there but of course leclerc and move as well as being lacanians are also Gramscians. And of course, as we said before, when we talked about the conspiracy show, the conspiracy stuff on the show about that, uh, the Gramscian perspective is that also there is always a grain of good sense in the common sense. There is always something that's not totally untrue about these myths. It's not totally untrue that power elites engage in behavior which is sadistically destructive to the lives of millions of children it might not even it might not even be untrue that loads of them are pedophiles i don't know um but more to the point it's like that like what that 50 minute city thing is really about is like basically traffic calming measures and low traffic na- neighborhood sort of thing no it is it is but it is also true i'm gonna say it is also true that there is a certain constituency of people in a country like Britain who are massively, massively invested in their car. Their car exactly, is the most yeah, important exactly. thing in their lives, and they have made yeah, it all figures th- freedom for them. Basically, well, it's not just that; it's that they've they've made all kinds of massive psychic and real material investments yeah. in a whole lifestyle in which getting the nice car is like why you go to work. That's why you don't have a more interesting job than you could have done. That's why you're living in this quite boring suburb that you might not have wanted to live in when you were twenty. That's why. Why, that's how you how and why you you do all this stuff and then when people come along and say actually we're going to change the way we organize this stuff so there wouldn't be any need for you to have done all this stuff to have the car it's they are for being threatened like it, it is genuinely threatening their interest and, and their and also the, the way in which they've invested their time and energy over the years so there is a grain of truth in it Susie and the Banshees, Mirage. I'm, I'm apologising, but not really, for everything being from the 70s and early 80s this time. It, it usually is. It is the great period for music. Susie and the Banshees, Mirage. Uh, I would want to play the version from the Peel Sessions, the John Peel Sessions, which were released in, in 87, but recorded, I think, in 78. One of the first recordings they did. And it's really a extraordinary song it's one of the very first manifestations of that feminist post-punk sensibility which would be developed by bands like the slits and the raincoats and the lyric goes my bodies are no oasis to drink from as you please the song is called mirage and it's specifically about that conception of the woman as a myth um, which is different from the flesh and blood woman i mean that's exactly what the song is about a pretty extraordinary piece of work
I sort of think I have a clearer idea about this than I did when we started, actually, because I sort of think several things. I think on the one hand, ultimately, I think, I always say this to people, one of the few things the left has going for it is the fact that we're telling people the truth. Like We can never let go of that. There is a difference between truth and bullshit, and we know more of the truth in it than the, than the liberals and the conservatives do. We can demonstrate it. We can prove it. Outcomes correlate with expectations more often if you do what we say than if you do what they say. They don't always, but more often. And, and I think that is really important. We have to hang on to that. On the other hand, I sort of think I sort of think it's true, as people like Leclerc would say, that any notion of to, of society as a comprehensive totality totality is sort of mythic and is going to be flawed and problematic. But I also agree with the Marxists, the Lukaches, the Jamesons, that you have to sometimes think in terms of society as a totality, or you again, you can't function politically. So there is a certain use of mythic thinking, which we can't get away from. And, um, and that's also, I guess that correlates with things I've said on the show before, like I would... I'm all for mythologizing and romanticizing the 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 my, the, the Southwell Coalfields and Nye Bevan, like I think, and Tridegar and the birth of the NHS. I think we should do more of that. <laughs> I think we should we should be insisting on a Labour government putting up statues to all those people all over the place, so everybody has to hear about it all the time. And I sort of think you can do that at the same time as saying in other contexts, well, look, you know. We know that, of course, the details are much more complex, and there would be there would have been all kinds of inequalities and bad things happening, and oppressive power relationships going on in those communities. And you have to be able to operate at these different levels; otherwise, you just can't really hope to successfully navigate the complexities of the the present. I don't know. What do you think? I think that was really good. I like that bit. The, the, the thing I wanted to talk about, though, or to go to riff off a little bit, was when you this idea that like we we have a better grip on reality than than liberals or the right. Um, and I think that is true. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you feel as though that that isn't true. Do you know what I mean? Basically, I want to make this argument here, right, which is which goes back to, like, Mark Fisher's, you know, acid communism project that, you know, which was one of the well, – the acid corbinism spin-off of that was one of the origins of the – It's that's our origin myth, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but, like, the whole premise of that is that, like, like capitalist realism, which is the book he wrote before, is all about, like, the, the future's disappeared and, like, neoliberalism has this, like, eternal present. And in loads of ways, the big problem with that was, like, basically history had been suspended, right? So that was the whole point of that. We're living in this neoliberal present that changed to something else – radically better is basically not thinkable do you know what i mean and then that breaks down partly 2008 and the financial crisis and you know basically a big real really big crisis for neoliberal ideology later on practice but also the problem of climate change which is which sort of says there cannot be an eternal present because all of these problems build up and in fact we're very very close to the situation where things have to will change fundamentally either through conscious action or or non-conscious action of like the natural natural forces, whatever however you put it, want to put that, and there are different ways in which people have responded to that. You know, the centrist response to this, the, the reemergence of history, is basically the long nineties, just to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, uh, and the, but the right wing response seems to be, or some of the right wing response seems to be 
that they're just going to basically abandon because the, our present position in history basically leads to left-wing solutions or at a, at a catastrophe. The right seems to have like opted out of history, and they've done that by having a by t- trying to think about time in a different way. So one of them is one we've we've sort of mentioned a couple of times recently, which is this idea of long-termism, where you just change your perspective of time to the long, long distant future, basically, and then you don't have to deal with the present. Yeah, and in fact, the horizon with within which everything you do now might end up having been justifiable. Yeah, it's ju- basically it's just to justify. Ultimately, it's to justify oligarchic concentrations of wealth because they're the ones who are who are giving the, the theorists of lo- of long termism loads and loads of loads and loads of cash, basically. Um, the other resort, of course, is like the deep past, which is like if you think about evolutionary psychology, which is one of the things that feeds into Jordan Peterson's work, it, 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 which is like, oh, the, 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 and this sort of relates to myth as well. Oh, yeah, the key to the present is not the present. We're trapped by these, these um, forces from evolution, which emerged in the, you know, on the plains of Africa, however many um, hundreds of thousands of years ago. But then the other one, the other one is that is like this like this embrace of myth, which you see in Peterson and people like that, and so like the, the and myth and myth being outside of history, where we talked about it a little bit earlier. But like the, the, what the type of temporality you see in myth, like mythic time, tends to be like cyclical, so secular conceptions of time, um, which you do see come up quite often in in like right wing conceptions of. Yes. Of um, like what's going on now. Look, you're mistaken to think about this as like time is linear, which is what history says. Instead, time is cyclical. And what we're actually in the cusp of, you know, you have these these things that repeat over huge amounts of time. One of them is um, the, the conception of generations by by Strauss and Howe, a very different Strauss, I can't remember his first name. <laughs> and then Steve Bannon did it. And their idea is that there are four types of generations that repeat over very long periods and so you know there's no progress what you're doing is you keep repeating and then steve bannon who was a theorist around well an activist around trump did this really awful documentary called generation zero which uses that to sort of argue you know basically we're on the cusp of something new doesn't matter what you think the problems are of, of history now we're in the cusp of something new we have to look back to these long loops in order to understand that what we need to do is not address climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's really interesting to think about different ways of thinking about history and temporality because, yes, I would say historically, conservatism is is generally is given to cyclical theories of time. Um, although there is th- cyclical theories of history, Although there is also a certain strand of conservative scepticism which runs through sort of Burke into the 20th century, which is is sort of anti-progressivist and is it, it generally stresses just the contingency of outcomes. And but it but it the argument it draws from recognizing the fact that history is so complex that no one can really determine what what's going to happen next, and anything you try to do will probably go wrong. The conclusion they draw from that is that well, you might as well stick with the tried and trusted methods of tradition and, and only ever try to change things very incrementally or in very small ways because otherwise you'll probably just make things worse. Well, that's a bit different from that cyclical version of history. Mm, yeah, no, it is. Yeah, and then there's also there's the liberal. It's, it, that's basically emerge, that's Burke, isn't it? Emerging out of like rejection of revolution basically it's burke and then it's sort of oak shot in the 20th century i, I mean i think that and yeah. it's people like john gray today as well 
So yeah, and that cyclical version is really really old. I mean, that's the I mean, the the first ever theories of history are these basically cyclical theories of history. I think I would say, and then there's also the liberal, the classic liberal theory is just the theory of endless, if incremental progress. You know, the arc of history mm. bends, but it bends towards justice. We just keep going. Things will get better over time. Um, that is really. And I, 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 I do live by that. Though. Well, it's an enlightened the, the, the arc of history. I need, I need that to. to, yeah, to is that your any... myth? Is that your animating myth, Nadia? It's a, my animating myth. It's Martin Luther King, isn't it? That the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I it think long, so. But yeah, it bends towards justice. It, 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 it was yeah, made famous King, yeah. by Obama. Uh, but I think yeah, it is I a need quote. that. But I, I, I need that myth. Yeah, my animating myth. Thank you, Kia. You've you've nailed it. And then there is the millenarian myth, which is the th- something which the left is really given to. I think the millenarian myth is the myth that we are we are almost at the end of history. We are about to see the great cataclysmic change, which will right all the wrongs, right all the injustices of the past, and put everything right. And there was certainly a millenarian strand of Corbynism. So I think, but the trouble with millenarianism is that historically it's, it's, it's always disabling for the left. Like as soon as it's the thing, it's the temptation for radicals, which I think you always have to avoid. I mean, one of the things which thinkers like Leclerc and Mouffe are preoccupied with from the 80s onwards is trying to incorporate those elements of that conservative sceptical view, which are obviously right in some senses, in which is into a left-wing perspective which doesn't completely give up on the possibility of a different future and doesn't give up on doesn't give up on the the elements of millenarianism which are useful the messianism as Walter Benjamin calls it in in just that you yeah it doesn't give up on the hope for a possible better future I think it's I think it is really interesting I and mean, I think I think my perspective is that you sort of have to bring all of those elements together somehow maybe not the c- c- cyclical theories which I'm not sure are in any way recoverable from a radical yeah. perspective but but like there is a big tradition of thinking about repetitions uh, so the left's p- perspective on 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 time and history is probably much more to do with you know it's not just that there's a that, that, that there's a linear progression but there are like there are ruptures and jumps and moves backwards and leaps and, and, and repetitions. I'm thinking of like the 18th Brumaire yes, course, yes, right? Where, of course. You know, basically, the, you know, the new emerges wearing the clothes of the old, etc. First as um, tragedy, second time as farce and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's true. But it's also like, if you think about like Mark Fisher, when he writes acid cop communism and he's trying to sense the reopening of the future, he goes back to the 70s. You know what I mean? It's like looking for the past, for the... For the yeah the, the 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 lost futures that seem possible in the seventies, we should play Stagger Lee by Lloyd Price, which is released in nineteen fifty eight. A big hit for Lloyd Price in nineteen fifty six. When 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 are we thinking about songs about myth? This came to mind for me because uh, of an essay that Grail Marcus wrote in his book Mystery Train, uh, called the Myth of Stagger Lee. I think Myth of Stagger Lee and perhaps Sly Stone because he uses this 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 myth of uh, or this sort of yeah this this myth this repeated story as a way to talk about first the Black Panthers and then um, Sly Stone uh, as in Sly and the Family Stone and so Stagger Lee is this sort of myth but it's based on an, an actual incident I think in which this sort of like high living you know high dressing pimp called Stagger Lee shoots a guy called Billy Lyon over a game of cards. Billy Lyon 
steals his Stetson hat and Billy and Staggerly shoots him dead. And it's one of those, it's a story that like has been in loads and loads and loads of songs before uh, and after Lloyd Price's um, the, uh, version. And in this, in this essay, Grill Marcus starts to talk about it as a myth. Uh, sort of one of the, one of the myths for around which black American men, um, uh, try try to sort of deal with, and he starts off with this with this quote from Bobby Seale, who's one of the the leaders of the of the Black Panthers, who who reveals that um, he named his uh, named his son Malik Nkrumo Stagali Seal, uh, and Nkrumo is like a a, a a famous leader in Africa. Uh, Malik is a reference to Malcolm X, and so like his his idea is that like Malcolm X was like a Stagali character before he had his conversion to. Uh, religious and political conversion. Uh, Malcolm X was also, a, you know, he was, a, he was a hustler who ended up in jail, etc. And then his conversion. Also, Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, the other sort of leaders of the Panthers, also had this sort of they had Staggerly within them. He, he sort of says, um, and in fact, one of the one of the the ideas of the of the Panthers that they would mobilize the lumpen, the lumpen proletariat. You know, they try to get the hustlers, the sort of street men, the staggerlies, and then convert them, convert them to politics. And of course, there's a not so nice story of of how once the Panthers are defeated, gangster rap replaces conscious rap. You know, once the once the possibility of change is, uh, has been eliminated, the myth of staggerly, this sort of idea of like a myth of freedom by not giving a fuck, who will you'll kill you just you know a, a drop of a hat, which gives them this huge power and all this sort of stuff. That myth recurs basically until BLM So I suppose we, I suppose all of those perspectives have some use under different circumstances, actually. But I suppose my strong message to ACFM listeners, will be, something I've been preoccupied with since the nineties, is the danger of the danger of the law of millenarianism, which uh, Mark was absolutely not immune to. If you remember some of his more excitable Facebook posts back in the day, you know <laughs> um, yeah, that is true. Yeah, you know, that the big problem, the big problem of a critique of millenarianism, or the, or the well, the difficulty, though, is um, it is the problem of climate change. It does feel quite end of times. It definitely isn't millenarian in that, like, we will have the apocalypse and then the better future will emerge after it. But it, but it does seem, you know, it does seem as though. Well, I think that I, I know it, seems, in the crunch I know times. it seems that way. But I think, I mean, I've said this on the show several times. So this is a refrain now. But I think, I think that end of that end of days discourse within the climate movement is really disabling and is also naive. It's naive about the reality of neocolonialism, really, because I just think, as I've said, I've said exactly this on the show before, the reality is we are not looking at the imminent collapse of Western civilization into a zombie apocalypse. We're looking at a situation in which quite a lot of our freedom might be constrained and our standard of living will continue to slowly erode, but mostly we'll be, ha- we'll be having to suffer the sort of the historic existential 
indignity and tragedy of having to watch hundreds of thousands of people die, millions of people die in places like Pakistan, while our governing class tell us nothing can be done to save them. But it's not going to be the end of our, of our world. It's not the end of civilization. That is a disabling, I mean, that is a myth and we shouldn't keep repeating it because I think lots of people who haven't really been brought on board to a kind of radical position on climate haven't been brought on board because they intuit, they know in their bones that that isn't true. And when they keep, when they get told it, that it's easier for them to turn away from it and say that's all bollocks because they intuit, they know in their bones that's not true because it isn't. Yeah, I know, but like knowing something in your bones. <laughs> well, no, this is like, an interesting point. It goes it goes back to what you're saying about an intuition, about like whether you can yeah, if yeah. you if you were creating an intuition, which I'd say that that that's interesting as part of that discourse that you were talking about earlier, because I don't think you that's that's right. I don't think it is about intuition. I don't think myth and intuition, you know, can work together. I do think it's a real problem, though. I just look at like the sort of millenarianism of Extinction Rebellion and just stop oil. You know what I mean? Of that, it's also that idea that like it, like one of the one of the ways it plays out is it massively shortens any horizon within those sort, which those sort of movements think about politics. It's basically five years. There's nothing that exists beyond that. You know, what no, I mean? it's true. Well, so well that's it's the th- five. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you know the the correct synthesis of all these different perspectives on history into and and I would say I would put my stick my neck out here and say a completely non mythical, a completely non mythical understanding of history and our place in it is a. It's demonstrably true that progress is possible. It's to, that is demonstrably true, and so the, the both the, the all the ver- versions of the conservative view of history, which is that progress ultimately isn't really possible, either because it always goes wrong in the end, or because we're living through endless cycles of repetition. They, those things are just demonstrably untrue, and the entire project of history as a discipline of the past couple of hundred years has been to show that they are untrue. They are that is untrue, but also it's also it isn't. It is also. It, it is. Uh, it's also not true that progress just happens without people, without fighting for it, and without conflict, and without massive um, conflicts of interest having to be played out and resolved, as the liberals say. And it's also not true that progress ever happens quickly, ever happens really suddenly. That there's ever a kind of sudden miraculous transformation of the kind that millenarianism promises. And I, th- I think that is what it means actually to live free from myth in a good way is to recognise all of those things. Like I think what the left needs to embrace after this, you know, after this slow cancellation of the future has been cancelled, is is that is that problem of like the problem of transition of like it is possible from go to here from here from starting here to go to somewhere else basically. That doesn't happen in a millenarian instant, right? That is a problem that you have to think through. Well, how what, you know, how can we act now in order to get to a different place in the future? It's, it's a problem that gets raised by climate change because one of the ways, if you say the problem of transition now, that people think about transition towns, etc. But that's one of the big, big problems that the left has grappled with and has a lot of knowledge of. I think, you know, over the over the the last um, two or three centuries. And I think there's a deep insecurity on parts on the part of parts of the left that that their myth or story, whatever, however we're going to define myth in this case, is just not true. That we cannot win, and I think that's a huge problem. Like, as a deep seated, latent affect that's sitting within of people. 
Well, I think that, but this is something I've always said to students. I've always said, look, you must, you, the thing you've got to avoid is the the fatalism of the disappointed revolutionary. Yeah. That is why you have to avoid millenarianism. Because if you set yourself a ridiculously unachievable goal, then when you don't achieve that goal, you will con- you will then be easily convincible that no that achieving no goal is possible. Also, it goes back to the individualism thing about if you think that everything has to happen now in your, not just in your lifetime, like it has to happen this year, you know, then again, going back to what you were saying, Jeremy, about your place in history, like understanding that you are playing a part and then that is important, but you might not get all of these things in your lifetime. But if you understand history, then you can see that where gains have been made and how those have had a a huge effect on people's lives. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to I've done it before. I'm going to do I'm going to quote George Eddie. I'm going to quote Middlemarch again. The growing good of the world is half the uh, what is it? That things and um, do that again. Oh, I can't I'm starting the quote wrong now. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. That's massive shivers. Yeah, that's made me feel really <laughs> emotional. That's really good. This is Ashley.